0: Welcome to the Connect Church Podcast. Our mission at Connect Church is to help people find and follow Jesus. For more information on who we are and how we're doing just that, visit myconnectchurch.cc. Now, let's jump into this week's message from Pastor Blaine. Being in Esther chapter 7. Just a real quick recap for those of you who may not know the story of Esther. Esther is a Jew living in Persia. She is a a young girl who has been uh, selected to be the king, the the king's wife, the queen of Persia, a very tumultuous time in the history of the world at this time. Uh, King Ahasuerus, who is uh, commonly now known to be King Xerxes, uh, has has a very unstable personality and uh, unpredictable most of the time. But uh, she has been his. She has been his wife for now five years. He doesn't know that she's a Jew. Uh, in the meantime, the the primary antagonist of the story is is Haman, and uh, one of the protagonists is Mordecai. They don't really know each other, but they learn about each other, and they hate each other because of this long standing family feud between King Saul and. King Agag uh, of uh, Amalek. And uh, and that feud goes back a thousand years before that. And so there's a lot of things going on here. Haman hates Mordecai so much rather than wanting to only kill Mordecai, chooses rather to kill all Jews. So here is another telling where, where God's Enemies are trying to wipe out God's people because if God's enemies can wipe out God's people, they will ultimately wipe out the seed of the woman that is going. Now, listen, I'm, I can assure you that that Nebuchadnezzar, that that uh, Xerxes, Haman that Herod, that none of these men, Pharaoh, they have no idea about the seed of the woman that's gonna give birth to the Messiah to, to ransom uh, mankind. Uh, they're, they're simply uh, a small plot in a mastermind's plot to, uh, uh, to destroy humanity and to remove God's greatest glory, which is our free will's ability to glorify him. Now, I say all of that just simply to say Uh, That's the situation we find ourselves in today is Haman has launched this plan to destroy all Jews uh, and, and Xerxes has approved of this plan not knowing that his wife is in fact a Jew. So now Esther has come to terms with who she is. She's been keeping the secret for five years, and and typically that wouldn't be that big of a deal. I don't even we don't even really sure why Haman would have said to keep her identity a secret, or uh, Mordecai would keep her identity a secret. But nevertheless, uh, no one cares. But the law was just passed that in a few months, all Persians would be able to kill all Jews, including Esther. And so Esther is obviously terrified about how that's going to go, and she has good reason. The king is a little off-center. She's going to approach the king and ask for a special favor. How is that going to go? I don't know. Now, let me give you a little bit of history. You won't find this in Scripture, but you will find it verified in in history. There is a story that goes all the way back to these it's about 481 to 480 BC when Xerxes is is marching towards Sparta and uh, the story is told about this this man uh, Pythias who is from a, a country called Lydia and as there, as Xerxes and his two million man army is marching through uh, to take the, the world, uh, they stop over and they camp out in this really large province that he owns. and And... Pythias, in order to have this favor of the king, offers to give him a ton of money uh, to to help out. And Xerxes is like, I mean, I'm paraphrasing. He didn't speak English. But he's saying, what are you talking about helping me out? Like Xerxes needs Pythias' money. I can win without your money. In fact, I'm going to give you some money. And so he does, and he has special favor of the king. On the way to war, the king's giving away money. All right, so that's great news, right? right. Well, the night before they're leaving, there is this huge storm, and the clouds come over top of the, all of the army, and that's a really bad sign. And so Pythias sees this cloud over the army. He's like, man, I've got five boys that's in this man's army. And that's a bad sign. So what we're going to do is I'm going to go to the king and say, hey, you've already been a huge blessing to me. i want going to just ask for a little more. Would it be okay if my oldest son stayed home? That's reasonable. So here's what Xerxes did. He called for the oldest son, the eldest son who would inherit all of Pythias' stuff and he cut him in two and he put one half of his body on this side of the street, the other side of the body on that side of the street and marched his army to Sparta. How dare you think that we're not going to win? Now, so, I mean, I can understand why Esther would be a little bit concerned about, he's extended me a little bit of favor, but I, you know, I don't want to take my chances in asking too much. I mean, you understand Esther's curiosity here as to why she would say, okay, I'm going to throw another feast and I can't, can't work myself up. I want to throw another feast. I don't want that to happen to me. All right, so I just wanted to kind of show you his uh, inability to be figured out. In chapter four, verse 16, Mordecai, I think it's the turning point of the book when Mordecai says, and it's one of my, it's probably my favorite saying in the book of Esther. He says that relief and deliverance will come to the Jews, but God may use you to bring it. Now, I love the doubting compromising Mordecai's shift in his character where like all of the promises of God has rushed back to him immediately. And he says, here's one thing that we know. God will win. God will win. And he's willing to use you. Who knows? But such such that you have been brought to the palace for such a time as this. And she said, well, I want to die one way or the other. I mean, if I don't do anything, I'm a Jew. I want to die. I might as well have a fighting chance. If I perish, I perish in verse 16. And I love that. What she's saying is, is that Mordecai's confidence in God's promises immediately lifted Esther to God's promises. And she says, if I die, I may as well be on God's side He may use me. God will win. I know that God wins. And what Esther, this is a shift that we begin to see in her. It's safer to be identified with God's people than the king. And the king has it all. But Esther realizes it's still safer to be identified with God's people than it is the the most powerful man on earth. And I want you to write that down somewhere. Because this is instrumental to giving her the courage, the ongoing courage. Because who has she sided with all the way through? The favor with men, favor with the king, and now she turns. Now we're talking about a much larger picture. And while I believe Esther is a true story, I also know that it is an allegory. An allegory is a true story that actually has somewhat deeper meanings, hidden meanings. Uh, attached to them and so I believe that while we are reading through Esther there is a much bigger story unfolding and that's the story that I really I don't care if we know the history although it's important what I want us to see is the parable that it is the the takeaways for us because what Esther does, and especially where we can see it much more clearly now, is well, how did we get to Persia? How do we live in Persia? But how do we have victory over Persia? That's the question that I've been wanting to get to all along. Is how do we live in a world, in a country where God seems silent? Where God's people are fearful and confused and complaining and wondering and bellyaching and grumbling and by all intents and purposes, not very effective for the kingdom, I might say. How can we live victorious when God's name isn't mentioned? And so Esther is that one book of the Bible that doesn't mention God's name, and yet it is, he is the one character that is so easy to see. God's made some amazing promises. For instance, in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, he said that I will be your God and you will be my people. In Genesis chapter 12, verses 1 and 3, 1 through 3, he tells Abraham in the Abrahamic covenant there, I will bless those that bless you and I will curse those that curse you. These are very powerful promises that Esther's remembering. And she's saying, But wait a minute, we're God's people. And God, God has already t- said, He will be our God. And we will be his people. So even when God is silent, his promises are true. Even when you can't hear his voice, his words are still very clear. I will bless those that bless you. And I will curse those that curse you. And yes, Xerxes and all the Persians look like they're getting blessed right now. But that doesn't come from me. And you may look like you're being cursed right now. But that's not coming from me. Believe my promises, not your circumstances. So Esther remembers. She believes the promises. She chooses to risk her life. She aligns herself with God's people. She clings to God's words. Let me just, if you're already writing things, write this down. The only time, I have heard now for a matter of weeks that for the first time in American history, regular churchgoers are in the minority. We're somewhere around 47% of America claim to go to church. This never happened in America before. But, let me, but let, let me encourage you in this. The only time that God's people are ever in the minority is when they give up. We're never in the minority. So you can say 47%. I don't need, We don't need 47%. We win. The Lord wins. He will always do what he said he's going to do. We don't need his voice to show up. We have his word. We have his promises. And every promise that God has ever made is yes and amen in Jesus Christ. And and you can do whatever you want to do to strip Jesus from every edifice and every statue and every document. But you cannot take him off the cross. He died for our sins. That is a historical fact that Jesus Christ died. It's also a historical fact that he raised from the dead. And I don't care what we do as a country. I don't even care what we do as a church. That can't be undone. And so that's where I'm going to stand. No matter what the majority says. I don't need to be in the majority. As long as we're faithful to God's promises. Chapter 7. So we're gonna do what we did last week. We're gonna kind of just run through the text and, and pull out a few things, okay? In Esther chapter seven. So the king and Haman went in to feast with Queen Esther. And on the second day, as they were drinking wine after the feast, the king again said to Esther. Now I want you to notice what he says. It's very, very important. What is your wish, Queen Esther? And it shall be granted you. And what is your request, even to the half of my kingdom it shall be fulfilled. And then Queen Esther answered, uh, by the way, not like Queen Vashti. <laughs> she, she learned. She said this very diplomatically. If I have found favor in your sight, O king, and if it please the king, let my life be granted for me, for my wish, and my people for my request. For we have been sold, I and my people, to be destroyed, killed, and to be annihilated. Now I want you to notice the progression that she gives from being hurt to being dead to being forgotten. If we had been sold merely as slaves, men and women, I would have been kept silent. Uh, for, For our affliction is not to be compared with the loss of the king. Now, wait a minute. What is she she really saying here? Uh, Slavery? (laughs) They're they're already, Jews are already enslaved to the Persians. What she is saying is this is bad for us. Death is bad, is worse than slavery, but it's also devastating for the kingdom. You remember where Haman was going to get his 10,000 talents, his $248 billion from plundering the Jews? So if the Jews are not slaves, their income is coming into the empire. But if they're annihilated, look at the income that's not going to be coming into the empire anymore. So if we were only going to be slaves, I wouldn't say anything. But but death is bad for us, and death is bad for you. And the king says... Who is threatening your life? This is the first I've heard of it. Worse than that, your people. Who are your, who are your people? How are you not my people? This is the first that Xerxes is hearing of this. So she says, if it were merely slavery, our freedom would be on the line. But this isn't just slavery. Our lives are on the line so there's two things here that she's that, that King says is uh, what is your wish and what is your request now the wish is a desire what do you want and the request is the fulfillment of that desire so the wish comes from the heart the request is the fulfillment and that's important because what the king is really saying to his queen here is this what is on your heart and how can I fix it And she said, well, what's on my heart is I'm about to die. I want my life, but how can you fix it? Save all of my people, not just my own life. So I want you to see how important that is, that what she's doing is not just standing in the gap for herself, but she is willing to be numbered with the other people who are going to be killed and annihilated. So then King Ahasuerus said to the queen Esther, Who is he? Where is he? Who has dared to do this? And Esther said, A foe and an enemy, the wicked Haman, the Agagot. It's a really interesting uh, translation. Uh, here that that I found, and and that is foe. What is a foe and an enemy? A foe is someone who is pretending to be your friend, but they intend to beat you. Some of you may have had foes in your life, people who pretended to be friends with you, but as quick as they could, they they turned on you and took your stuff, your reputation, your whatever. Uh, Those are foes. Enemies, you don't really worry about, are they my friends or not? These are people that were against you from the very beginning. So what she is saying is, in fact, the word foe here is translated uh, Hebrew IS, which is just uh, the man. The man and the enemy, but in the context, what she is saying is, your, your friend, your man friend that is here represented as your best friend is an enemy to all of us. He's trying to destroy your kingdom and he's going to try to destroy my people. Your foe and enemy. A foe to the king, an enemy to Esther. A wicked man to both. Haman was terrified before the king and the queen. You ever been in an awkward room? Ask Haman. He can understand an awkward room. You're in there with two other people, One of them, both of them were your friends just a moment ago. What just happened? I mean, Haman is on top of the world getting everything he wants. Every plan, every scheme is working perfectly. He's enjoying an intimate dinner with the king and the queen. And then literally in a a matter of seconds, the queen is pointing her finger at him. And he can tell from his friend's face that his life is over. Verse 7, and the king arose in his wrath and from the wine drinking. You know what? This is the third time the king has wrath. From wine drinking and went into the palace garden. He's trying to just take it in, cool off. I didn't know my wife is a Jew. I didn't know my best friend's my enemy. But we know the king. He ain't cooling off. He's only steaming up. Haman stayed to beg for his life from Queen Esther, for he saw that harm was determined against him by the king. Now, he's not sorry for what he did. He's sorry he's about to die. Verse 8, And the king returned from the palace garden to the place where they were drinking wine, as Haman was falling on the couch where Esther was. Now, just know they didn't go there. This isn't how we would say this. It's not what it looks like. It's really not what it looks like. They, they would recline at couches. This was a, a custom that the Persians kind of created. Uh, the Greeks followed suit. The Romans followed suit. In fact, that's the way they ate during Jesus' time was in a reclining uh, couch-like positions when they had them. They're just kind of taking it easy. The Persians are the ones who created that. And so when Haman is kind of uh, at, at the feet of Esther and falling onto the couch desperately begging for her favor now, The king walks in and sees that. Now, anybody in their right mind knows in this moment, it's not what it looks like, including King Xerxes. But here's what I think's going on. If Xerxes turns around and says, hey, wait a minute, I'm the one, it was my signet ring that passed that law. And if I undo that law, I'm gonna be a laughingstock again. Ultimately, the buck stops with the king, but I don't wanna take the fall for this again. You know what? Here's an easy way. I'm going to accuse Haman of coming on to the queen. That's that's treasonous. That's that's He's a traitor. And when I tell everybody, well, why did Haman get killed? Because he was making passes at my wife. Oh, that makes sense. Not, why was Haman killed? Well, because he suckered me. I'm an idiot. <laughs> and he suckered me into writing a law that I didn't agree with to kill my wife that I love. And you see, so... Esther was with Haman alone. But but one of the things that I want you to recognize and I want you to remember and we've seen it time and time again is this. The irony of this book is absolutely stunning. Just when you begin to predict how it's going to go, it turns. Now, let me say that because that's true of the book of Esther, that's also true of your life. You're not reading your life like we read the book of Esther. But however you think your life is going, in a second, it can turn. When you're headed right toward the crossroads of life, it can turn. And when life is going exactly the way you prescribed it, it can turn in a moment, in a second. Circumstances then change quick, but God's plans and God's promises never change. God's presence never changes. God is not absent just because he's silent. So here's my advice to you. Do not live your life according to your feelings and your circumstances because I'm telling you, it will change quickly. You're going to live on a roller coaster and you can't possibly be fruitful for the kingdom of God. In fact, you won't be fruitful in this world either. This world changes too quickly. But if you will set your feet like Esther learned to do on the promises of God, they will not change and your circumstances can't change them. So when the Holy Spirit enters into a person, he gives us the power to control our feelings, not our circumstances. So while your feelings may tell you to do one thing or to think one way, God's promises remind you to focus on him. When you order your life, just know this, God orders your steps. You will not want to live contrary to what God wants for your life. And so when you think about the plans, what's your five-year plan, your ten-year plan, what kind of person you want to marry, what kind of job do you want to have, all of these are just plans that we have. And no, every one of them, on a dime, nobody knows. But if you are firmly secure on the promises of God, life doesn't really change that much. Because I'm, all I'm doing, I'm just walking toward the kingdom. That's all I'm doing, just walking toward the kingdom. And all of these external things that I get caught up in when I'm focused on my kingdom, they're just just things I have to go through to get to the throne room. And the king said, Will he even assault the queen in my presence, in my own house? And as the word left the mouth of the king, they covered Haman's face. Then Harbona. One of the eunuchs in attendance of the king said, Now listen, I don't know what kind of guy that Haman is. Up to this moment, very few people do. His family do. That's, that's really the only ones who that we know know. The eunuchs, I don't know. But apparently they've worked with this guy long enough to know that at the very first moment that Haman is on a slippery slope, it's, hey, there's a way we can kill him. <laughs> I think I think... Haman might have rubbed a lot of people the wrong way. One of the eunuchs in attendance on the king said, moreover, the gallows, remember that's a a spike, a pike out in Haman's backyard, 75 feet tall. Haman has prepared for Mordecai, whose word saved the king, is standing at Haman's house, 50 cubits. And the king said, I love this, the brevity. Hang him on that. It's the quickest turnaround in Scripture. I mean, this guy was eating grapes off the king's plates 45 seconds ago. And now his eyes are covered and he's getting taken to the pike. So they hanged Haman on the gallows that he had prepared for Mordecai. Then the wrath of the king abated. You know, Haman was living for this life And so when this life life was over, everything that he had lived for was over. And he was destroyed. And he was killed and forgotten. By the way, this is the last, well, chapter 9, verse 6, when all of Haman's ten sons are killed too. They had no offspring. It's very important because God had told King Saul to kill King Agag so that there would no longer be any Amalekites left. But Saul didn't do that. And from that point on, every generation had to deal with a Haman who tried to destroy the Jews. But here, this is the last Amalekite. They're no longer, they're annihilated from history. He had no preparation for the life to come. And so his choices in this world cost him everything you know you never know when your last supper is coming or how quickly life can turn around on you this is why we have to make decisions based on the kingdom instead of selfish decisions we have to ask questions what's good for the kingdom not what's good for me what's good for mine what's good for my family what's good for my future But we ask ourselves, what's good for the kingdom? What's good for his glory? What's good for eternity? This is why Jesus said to store your treasures up in heaven because you get to spend the rest of your life moving toward your valuables. If your treasures aren't in heaven, you spend the rest of your life moving away from them. Haman lived for others to see him. And now, at 75 feet tall, everybody can. Someone has to die to satisfy the anger of the king. Haman deserves it. And so Esther pointed it out. The eunuchs pointed to the spike. Haman immediately began to search for a savior in Esther. But he couldn't find one. Esther couldn't satisfy the anger of the king. But the allegory is there's one better than Esther. There's a better hero. There's a better savior who didn't step out of the way. You see, in us is a Haman. We deserve death. We pretend to be friends with God, but we're not. We only want God's things. And our selfishness separates us from Him. We're not friends with His people. We're... Born enemies of one another. Selfish. Sons of disobedience. Children of wrath. And the Bible says, Paul says, that the wrath of God abides over every one of us. Esther risked her life in order to save herself and her people. But the Bible tells us that Jesus gave his life in order to save his enemies. Esther was one who moved into the throne room. But Jesus left the throne in order to identify with his people. And now Esther is doing the same thing. Because it is, be, is better to be acquainted and identified with God's people than it is with the best things this world has to offer. But even though Jesus came to be identified with his people... John chapter 1 verse 11 says that his people did not receive him. Instead, his people called out for him to be hanged on a tree. Do you know that Romans, Roman there was never a Roman that was hanged on a cross. It was against the law. I don't care what you did as a Roman You did not qualify to die on a cross. It's too humiliating. No Roman is that vile. How do you think God felt when they took his precious son and laid him down on a Roman cross and crucified him? I'll tell you, you don't have to wonder. When the sin of humanity flooded the Son of God, the Father looked away. The Old Testament is actually where we find out how God felt, is that God was filled with wrath because of what sin had done and caused His Son. Someone has to die because of someone else's sin. Felt like King Ahasuerus when his wife's life's being threatened. But unlike King Ahasuerus, what did Jesus say? Father, forgive them. They know not what they do. Jesus didn't point the finger. He took it. He stepped up and he willingly took all of God's anger on himself all of the anger that that all of the sin deserved and when Jesus said it is finished he wasn't talking about his life because it wasn't when Jesus said it is finished he was talking about the wrath of God that abides on the heads of humanity it doesn't have to be that way anymore you can walk with God's wrath on you and be separated from him Or you can recognize that the wrath of God has been settled in Jesus Christ. And you don't have to die Haman's death. Though you were guilty as Haman. This is the gospel. This is the good news that a wicked people who crucified God's only son can be forgiven if they only turn to him in repentance. In Acts chapter 2 verse 36 and 37 Peter said this. I'm going to read it. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ. This Christ whom you crucified, now when they heard this, they were cut to the heart and they said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, brothers, what shall we do? Powerful. Peter points to them and he says this, you crucified Jesus Christ, the son of God. Jesus The Lord, the Christ, he's the one you crucified. And when they heard it, what did they say? Tell us what we have to do. We'll do whatever it takes. We're desperate. Give us favor. Show us a way out. Jesus is not just talking to Jews. He's talking to the very ones who crucified Jesus. The worst, the most devious, the most hateful, the vilest ones. So for those of you who think that you've done some sin that can't be forgiven, these these men are the ones Peter is talking to. And here's what he said. Repent and be baptized, every one of you, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. So I don't care who you are. That's the remedy. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And then what he does, he takes his spirit And places it inside of you. We deserve death because of our sin and our separation. Sometimes we look to ourselves as a Savior, but I'm telling you, we will always fall short. Esther can't save us, Peter can't save us, but Jesus can. He volunteered to do what Esther wouldn't to satisfy the wrath of the King. All right, chapter eight, and we're almost done. On that day, King Ahasuerus gave to Queen Esther the house of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came before the king, for Esther had told what he was to her, that she was cousin. You know, she, he, she now, for the first time, is admitting that she is a, um, a Jew and, and also an orphan. Mordecai saves the king's life and Esther's. Verse 2, And the king took off his signet ring, which he had taken from Haman, And gave it to Mordecai. Matter of days. Haman goes from speaking for the king, now Mordecai speaks for the king. And Esther said Mordecai over the house of Haman. So the signet ring that proved doom now proves salvation and freedom. See how quickly things change? So when you start having that gloom and doom identity of, oh, God's forgotten about me, God doesn't care, God's not gonna keep his promises, oh, it changes quick. Don't give in to your circumstances and don't give in to your fear. Trust God's promises. That's why we shouldn't depend upon our circumstances. Now, things are balanced again. Esther and Mordecai, all her family are saved. Thank you, King. No, no, no. Not from Esther's point of view. Verse three: I mean, think about from the king's point of view. You had a, you know, you told me you didn't want to die. Well, you're not going to die. Neither is Mordecai. I'm going to save your family. You're welcome. Here's what Esther said Esther spoke to the king again. She fell at his feet and wept and pleaded with him to avert. That word vert means to pass over, it means to to smooth out, to turn from bad to good. The evil plan of Haman the Agagite and the plot that he had devised against the Jews. And when the king held out the golden scepter to Esther, Esther rose and stood before the king. Now he feels good about what he's done. He feels like it's accomplished. But it's not done as far as Esther is concerned. And I want you to see this radical shift. Esther, whom just five years ago did not want to be identified with God's people, now stands in the gap for them. I will not accept salvation if you don't give it to all of those people Two, and she said, if it pleased the king, and if I found favor in his sight, and if the thing seems right before the king, and I am pleasing in his eyes, let an order be written to revoke the letters devised by Haman the Agagite, the son of Amathadah, which he wrote to destroy the Jews who are in the provinces of the king. Listen to this, verse six. For how can I bear to see the calamity that is coming to my people? Or how can I bear to see the destruction of my kindred? But that is exactly what we do, isn't it? We accept the salvation from the king and then to hell with the rest of the world, just me and my family, that's all I care about. Let me get back to normal. Let me get back to my stuff. Let me get back to normal. But God's salvation is for everyone in every province. How dare we stand with honor because we're saved when salvation flows through us to the nations and to our neighbors and to our enemies. Man, Esther moved quick. This girl who just not long ago only cared about how she looked and how she walked and how she ate and all of a sudden says, meaningless, I've been to the top and it's rubbish compared to the freedom that we have in God. And I will not rest until every Jew has the same opportunity that I've had. Then King Ahasuerus said to the queen, Esther and the Mordecai, the Jew, Behold, I've given Esther the house of Haman, Have hanged him on the gallows because he has intended to lay hands on the Jews. Listen, the enemy. When you are saved, when you are trusting the promises of God, the enemy is defeated. But we need to realize something: the curse is still active. Haman is dead. He's not a threat. He's already defeated. He's defeated at the cross, Haman's cross. But the curse, the curse is still active. And in nine months from now, every Jew is still going to go into eternity lost. And my prayer is that we would never be satisfied until the last person in the most remote province of this kingdom has heard the good news. So Hazarus called for his scribes, all the lawmakers, the writers to devise an additional law of good news and told Mordecai, Mordecai, you write this down. You do whatever you want to do to circumvent this. My law can't be changed. But if you can devise some way to nullify what we've already done, put the ring on it. Verse nine, the king's scribes were summoned at that time and the third month was just the month of Sivan on the 23rd day. And an edict was written according to all that Mordecai commanded concerning the Jews, to the satraps, the governors, the officials of the provinces from India to Ethiopia, 127 provinces to each province in its own script, its own language, to each people in its own language, and also to the Jews in their script and in their language. Not just the Jews get to know about it, but every human being needs to know about it in their own language so that they can understand. And it needs to be posted everywhere. You can't miss it And he wrote in the name of the king Ahasuerus and sealed it with the king's signet ring. I want you to notice the urgency here. Then he sent the letters. By, and if you go back to when the first law was being proclaimed through the whole kingdom, you will see with some urgency. those mounted horses. But here I want you to notice. Mounted couriers riding on swift horses that were used in the king's service, bred from the royal stud. This is so much more important than that first edict, saying that the king allowed the Jews who were in every city to gather. You see that? No home has to be alone. Now on this day, you can gather together, put yourselves in ranks, assemblies, join forces, families with families create community and collaboration. This is a signal of unity for God's people and defend their lives to destroy, to kill, and to annihilate any armed force of any people or province that might attack them, children and women included, and to plunder their goods. On one day throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus on the 13th day of the 12th month, which is the month of Adar, On this day, you can defend yourself. Here's what he says, is if you need to, you need to stand firm. But the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. I hope that you can see it's not just a true story, but the allegory of Esther. Esther. And her relentless pursuit for those that have not heard the breaking of the curse who have not heard the release of the captives the, the, the community all of the you remember even in Susa the citadel they were confused and low and now they're getting to hear Verse 13, a copy of what was written was to be issued as a decree in every province being publicly displayed to all peoples. And the Jews were to be on the ready on that day to take their vengeance on their enemies. So the couriers mounted on swift horses using the king's service rode out hurriedly urged by the king's command. Hey, by the way, this doesn't happen for nine months, but we want, Jude, we want to have all the time that's necessary to get the word out because we can diffuse and bring peace to the entire empire. Verse fifteen. Then Mordecai went out from the presence of the king in royal robes. And I'm not going to make. A, I'm not going to make a huge deal out of this. But everybody knows, you know, the blue and white is what you wear when you're victorious. So, verse fifteen, king in royal robes of blue and white. Come on, that's a little bit. That's a, give me a little bit there. That's actually in the scripture. With a great. I know it's just not funny. I get it. With a great golden crown and a robe of fine linen and purple. So the king wore a purple outer garment, and on the inner garment he would wear purple and white stripes. He and he alone. And if you were ever to wear the king's clothes, the king would dress you in uh, maybe a purple outer garment because you represent him. But the inside was a salt would be always a solid color. So here he's letting Mordecai dress like he dresses, not necessarily in purple, but in a shade. He's representing the king. He needs to look like the king. He's riding on the king's horses. And the city of Susa shouted and rejoiced. The Jews had light and gladness and joy and honor. That's much better than fear and dread and confusion. But get this, verse 17, and and then I'm done. And in every province and in every city, wherever the king's command and his edict reached, there was gladness and joy among the Jews, a feast and a holiday. And many, listen to this, and many from the people of the country declared themselves Jews for fear of the Jews had fallen on them. Persians were the aggressors and seemed to be in complete control. So I want you to lay your story right on top of this until God's people could defend themselves. And now that God's people are allowed to battle and they are empowered with the favor of the king and they can defend themselves, they counter control, but they're not violent. They're bringing peace. Peace that brings about light and gladness and joy and honor. They went from fear of annihilation to victorious and they didn't raise a sword. Freedom, preparation, and unity was all it took. And Satan may, be, may seem victorious and many of God's people live in fear of the damage that he's capable of. But listen, God has given us the ability to withstand, to defend, to live. And we now... Are to be the aggressors. And how are we aggressors? By bringing the peace of the kingdom. When our holiness Our preparation, our Christ likeness, our welcome circumspectly as Paul commanded us to live. When it is visible to the world around us, it's so attractive to those that are under the curse. And the problem is, living in the world we live in right now, the church doesn't look much different than the world. And so when the world looks at us, they, they don't see something attractive. They see an enemy. But if we were to walk in the holiness of Jesus Christ and we were to be able to withstand and draw lines and say this far and no further, we will no longer compromise. Right is right and wrong is wrong. We know whose we are and this is as far as we go. When they begin to see the favor that rests upon God's people, it's attractive to those under the curse. We move from fear to fearless. And many of them will want to be numbered with God's people. Often we think today, because of the situations we find ourselves in, that evangelism is about weakening the blow of the gospel. Watering it down. Just get along. Compromise to stay alive. Hoping that our compromises will bring about victory. Compromises will not bring victory. Jesus Christ does. He always will. That's a promise. In the process, while we wait, we've lost a lot of God's people due to comfort, weakness, compromise, fear. And we don't experience the power of Jesus by winning anything but by standing firm and for His glory, not for our comfort or for our lives, but for His life. So this morning, there's lots to chew on there. And the the book really isn't over. We're going to to be done there and do some takeaways later. But I want to just encourage you, whether it's in your life or whether it's in your nation, when God seems silent and you don't know what to do, trust His promises. He will always fulfill His promises. And when it doesn't seem like it, and you are falling further and further into fear and to dread, remember His promises He will always see us through. Quit worrying about your circumstances and quit worrying about the trapments of life all around us and keep moving toward the kingdom. Keep moving toward your treasure. Keep moving toward him. What's Hebrews say? Keep your eyes on Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. I'm going to ask you to stand with me this morning. And as we, as we close, just quite honestly, I know that as a church, as individuals, I'll say it that way, uh, there are most likely many of us who have been living out of balance. And we get, we get joy from getting our way, from being comfortable we, we, we feel like we're entitled to happiness, and so that becomes our chief pursuit. And I I'm, and I'm I'm just want to tell you, we end up in a place we don't re- recognize we're in. I can assure you that Esther, Esther was in a place that she did not recognize that she was in. That's why it's so shocking. We, we, we start pursuing the wrong things. We start Our eyes start being blinded. We start believing all of Haman's lies. And we get exactly what we wanted, and it's not what we wanted. So I want to appeal to us this morning. The only way to take that back is by repentance. Is by recognizing in our minds that how did I get here? Just like Esther, how did I get here? But here's what I know. God allowed every one of us to be birthed at such a time as this, in such a place as this. And there is purpose and meaning even in our circumstances. But you will not understand your circumstances if you don't understand your Savior. Keep your eyes on him. That's where we find our purpose. So don't lose heart. Don't walk away. Don't find fulfillment in the joys of this life because they can turn like that. And if you're about to give up, don't find solution in the crossroad of life because it can turn at any second. Trust Jesus and his promises. So this morning, if you need to maybe come forward or repent, we need to pray and ask God to forgive us and to renew us and to restore us and to create a revival in us. And and I pray that we would adopt the same heart of Esther of how could we be satisfied with only our family when the whole world is under the curse. How do we get the message out? How do we make sure that everyone can understand the, the 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 break in the curse, the cure for the curse? How can we make sure that every people group on the face of this planet can understand that they're not under the curse anymore? Stand, arise, stand firm, therefore. Put on the weapon of our warfare. Put on the armor of God and you will win. No matter the circumstance, you will win. You know, when you think about, well, I mean, it's, it's one thing to say I believe God's promises. It's another thing to believe them but not know what they are. It's one of the reasons why it's so important for God's people to be people of the book, be people of the word to know what are God's promises? What are they to me? How, how do I know how to walk in the idea of his promises? How do I know what it looks like to walk in the fulfillment of Christ's plan for my life? So I encourage you, be people of the book. Be, be in the word. Let it become an overflow for your life. And while you get started, here's one: "Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you are with me." Jesus said, "I will never leave you, and I'll never forsake you." These are promises. So when you don't want to, you, when you don't know what to do, just know who you're with. That's a, that's a great first promise. Hold on to that one. There's so many others, but that's a great first one. I will never leave you. Emmanuel, God with us. So when you can't hear him, it doesn't mean he's not in the room. Lord, we love you. and We thank you so much for all your promises. Thank you for your faithfulness. Thank you that you are the faithful amen. We thank you for your word over the last few weeks. I pray that it wouldn't just be a sermon series, that it would become a testimony of our life especially for these days that we live in. We ask that you be lifted up among us, you be glorified. I pray that as we go, Lord, that we would stand in the gap for the nations. I pray that you would give us a, a passion and a compassion for people that are under the curse. And may we boldly proclaim the curse is lifted and it is satisfied because of the sacrifice of the one who went to the cross. And Lord, we celebrate the cross, but we, th- we thank you for the empty tomb that where he is, we will be too. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. amen. If you need help finding or taking your next step, send us a message at hello at myconnectchurch.cc.